Maureen Allison has seen a lot in her career and in her life. She was one of the first women to graduate from West Point and then went on to a role at the FBI bringing down some of the largest drug rings on the East Coast. Eventually, she moved into the private sector to head up security for AMP Foods. And today, she's the vice president and chief information security officer for Johnson & Johnson. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Maureen discusses her entire journey, as well as everything she's learned, what it means to lead IT and security for a worldwide organization, what the future of AI and consumer privacy looks like, and much more. This podcast is sponsored by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash buildmobileapps. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And on the other line, on the other side of the country, Maureen, what's going on? Uh, not much. Uh, we're waiting for spring to finally show up here in New Jersey and uh, sunshine finally. So it's all a good day here in New Jersey. So you have one of the most interesting backgrounds and obviously, you know, your current role at Johnson & Johnson, we're going to get into all that, but your kind of career has had a lot of firsts and, you know, this is maybe, maybe a little bit lower on the list, but you are our first former FBI special agent that has come on IT Visionaries. So we're pretty excited to talk about that as well. Well, that's awesome. Good to hear. Not a lot of law enforcement types come on IT Visionaries? No, you know, everybody, every, one of the things that we've really learned about you know, C-level leaders and VPs of, of, of IT and this world of information security, information technology and operations is just how different all the backgrounds are. But yours is particularly interesting because we share a special bond that we both went to West Point, but you are the second West Pointer that we've had uh, on, on here, which is kind of fun as well. Well, good. At least I'll be second in something. <laughs> uh, I love it. So let's get in, let's get into uh, to your background. You spent, you know, time at time at West Point and, and time in the military, and then you went into the FBI. What were you working on? As a special agent in the FBI, uh, I was working on uh, applicants. A lot of new agents uh, work on the applicants. I was out in San Diego, California, which was a beautiful place to be stationed. And uh, applicants, and then my husband and I, who was also a special agent, we moved to Newark, New Jersey after a few years. But while in San Diego, probably the most interesting thing that I did is I was working on the terrorism squad, and we worked on the uh, captain of the Vincennes, Captain Rogers, and he had the, the ship that was attacked by the Iranian Airbus in the late 80s. And people tend to forget that point in history, uh, but he actually shot down an, a civilian airliner in Iran, outside of Iran, uh, with his ship, the Vincennes. That's remarkable. And so what was the state of, I mean, this was at the time in the 80s when nuclear terrorism and all of that was kind of at its peak, <laughs> also fostered a, a ton of good uh, John Clancy novels and, and many other things. But, you know, actually, as someone living it, what was the like heightened sense of security back then? And I think it, you know, it plays into a lot of the things that we look at now for security and we'll get into that, but how different the type of threat was back then, but how kind of similarly, you know, terrifying it can be. Well, at the time, terrorism was a very physical event and almost all of the security was around the physical world. So again, if you look at the uh, captain of the Vincennes, here he was on a vessel out in the middle of the ocean attacked by an aircraft. So very physical. And if you remember, it wasn't too many years prior to that. In uh, 1981, General Dozier was captured by the Red Brigade while he was in Italy. 
The Red Brigade was around for about 10 years from the early 70s to the 80s. Much of what they were doing was very leftist and to prevent, uh, uh, not prevent, but working with the communism and what was going to happen in Italy. And, you know, we look at Italy today and we think great wine, wonderful place to visit. Terrorism isn't what we think of Italy. But back in the 70s, it was very, very much present, very physical. And then what has happened over the years is, as we've seen, not only are is the physical violence still very, very prevalent, IEDs and bombings, but also what occurs online, the ability to recruit, the ability to hack in, steal data, and what used to be where a nation would have to go to another sovereign nation's uh, land or ocean to be able to perpetrate the crime or attack them, today you can do it online. You can get into company systems. You can get into government systems. Well, hopefully not today because they're protected, but in the very in the very recent uh, history and be able to get in and cause harm and mayhem, which change literally how nations need to look at sovereignty as well as terrorism, as well as crime. Do you think that there are some parallels with the corporate world and how we view security and your time in the FBI? Oh, absolutely. So one of the things you have to remember is the army or the military is for outside of the United States. The FBI is for inside of the United States. And again, we've talked about, especially with information security, that transcending from the physical security to the IT security or online. And where we used to think of companies were very responsible all for their own security. They have to do it all themselves. And the government was a government agency somewhere else. What has happened now, again, is when you see a large bank or a large corporation who's attacked, that actually can be used by nation states as an act of war, but now we're attacking something we never would see as an attack. Let me give you a better example of this. So if someone were to bring a military device, a howitzer, onto the lawn of a large corporation and lob a shell, at that corporation. The government, law enforcement, fire department would clearly know that that is an act that is not good and somebody's got to respond. But when you have an online attack, who responds? Who's responsible? Who has jurisdiction? So a lot of what we do today has transcend uh, what we normally know as the response to now how do we respond in these areas, which for us in the IT profession has created a unique dilemma, a unique opportunity for us to try to solve, use our resources in the government and law enforcement, military, to ask, how are you going to help us defend our country? Yeah, I think it's such an interesting point because with threats, you know, we we talked about, you know, when I was in Afghanistan about, you know, the 360 degree battlefield and threats coming from everywhere. And truly that is the case with, you know, our digital security now. Threats can come from any place and you don't necessarily know who they are or what device they're coming from or what country they're coming from at any given time. Do you think that the evolution of those threats, like specifically from from a tech perspective, are something that is scarier now or I mean, maybe scary isn't the right word, but is just something that is because it's such a, a silent attack that it that is something that we should maybe we haven't taken as seriously as, as we should have? Well, I think it's been not as visible uh, until a number of the laws requiring disclosures of those attacks, some companies may not have disclosed them or the government may not have disclosed them. They weren't required to at the time. But I'm going to take us back to our uh, military science days at West Point. Let's do it. Probably Probably the most important thing, even in the cyber world, is know thy enemy. 
And so I would tell you that there are signatures, there are activities that can be utilized, and you can gain intelligence of those who are attacking you. A level of sophistication, uh, you can look at avenues that they come in, technologies they they are utilizing, which helps give you a clue to whether you're being attacked by a nation state, by hacktivists or hackers, by an insider threat or, you know, script kiddies, people just trying to do, create mayhem. And by looking at that, you can really tell your level of response and what you have and what you need to do. That's really interesting. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of times, you know, on a traditional battlefield, we could look at, okay, they were uniformed forces fighting, you know, in in World War II, you had the Germans who wore uniforms who fought us in a certain way. And a lot of it was about, you know, gaining ground and this kind of war of attrition and controlling areas of terrain. With cyber attacks, it's not that way at all. What are the types of behaviors and like end states that these attackers are looking for? Is it just kind of like disruption? Is it just kind of causing mayhem, like you were saying? Or are some of these things pushing towards a specific end result whether that be elections or otherwise or anything like that? Um, Yes. I mean, so you can see what's happening over the course of years. There's been a number of exposures of data that have been linked back to China. They have come in, the Veterans Administration, even Target to a certain degree, Aetna and others that have been attacked. But the data never makes it to the street. Okay, there's there's healthcare data in there, there's age and information data, but that is never found on the dark web. And so one has to ask, okay, what are you doing with the data? Now, some of the government folks will tell you, don't ever go to China because they'll follow you and they'll know who you are. Been to Tiananmen Square, watched them bring down the Chinese flag, have gone to the Great Wall, uh, wasn't followed and didn't see that type of activity in China. Versus we have seen like the NotPetya virus that occurred almost two years ago now, which was extremely destructive brought down major corporations in the United States, caused disruption to our supply chain. The virus was only available for three hours and it was able to create that destruction. Now, one would ask if a large nation state was doing that, was behind that, why didn't they let it go longer? Or one could ask, was it somebody got a hold of that information on how to do that, and then the nation state didn't want that data out or how that method of attack out, but it was out, so they took it down immediately. Now, I don't have those answers. I don't work for the government, and I certainly don't work in Intel, but it can make me wonder if they knew that 80% of the companies that did business in the Ukraine were using that specific software and were going to hit that specific server for update, there was intel on when that attack was launched. It could not have been that random. So that's where I say we do see things in the environment that make us question things. I mean, I'll even tell you that, you know, hacktivists a few years ago were fairly rampant, not as rampant today, but you could even see them and provide input. After one of the large hurricanes in New Jersey, we saw one of the, somebody who was attempting to hack who was no longer online. So we started to assume, maybe wrongly, but maybe rightly, that they must be in some place that didn't have electricity yet. They did not have internet connection if they all of a sudden stopped. So likely they weren't coming from California, they were likely coming from more local. And so that information can be provided, which helps ID individuals uh, for law enforcement to do their job. You know, it kind of reminds me of that, and I don't know if it's a saying or a a corollary or something, but the idea that no two countries with a McDonald's have have ever been at war with each other or something like that. I forget the exact, exact thing. But I think it's an interesting look into this kind of current 
threat landscape where if you were to say that, you know, no two countries that have, you know, a McDonald's have done cyber attacks against each other, that's like 100% not true, potentially. <laughs> um, and that those those types of like ununiformed forces or a nation state potentially are doing things that are that are detrimental. They're just not necessarily taking, you know, human lives. Do you think that those type of, you know, hacktivists or or smaller rogue groups, what percentage of those folks are targeting corporations for financial gain to say, hey, we're going to try to extort them for this information or this money? Most is for the criminal element to find data for money. I don't even think it's extortion. It's what data is available out there on what account, where, that I can gather information on to monetize. That's the biggest. So most of the corporations of my size, about 90% of the email that is destined to come into my company gets stripped off even before it gets into my company because it's some type of phishing or malware and we just don't even let it into the gate. Wow. 90%. That is unbelievable. And so today, the sophisticated technologies, and this is why I love being a chief information security officer, because not only do I get to use brand new, innovative technologies every single day, every single year, we have a lot of innovation, venture capitalists in our technologies. And so we get to put these together. We get to design new systems, new way of going after. We get to work with end users. But I also today get a lot of work, you know, there's a lot of the new uh, cloud technologies is now called AI, artificial intelligence. Not a lot of artificial intelligence out there yet, a lot of machine learning and correlation that's going on. And so in my space, I have a huge cloud of security data that I do uh, machine learning and correlation on to try to find the needle in the haystack in technologies that when the invisible man comes into the room who's trying to steal data, I may not be ever able to see him or her when they enter, but I can see their impressions on the carpet to be able to identify them and to surround them and prevent them from moving anywhere or taking any data. So it's a very interesting space for us in this area. And so I have a job now, you know, here I've taken my military side where I had to learn, you know, military police and then my FBI side, my intel background, my terrorism knowledge from the FBI and my electrical engineering training from West Point. And I put that all together and I've got like the perfect job. That's so, it's, it's really cool to hear. And I love the idea of, of seeing the footprints and how you're, how you're tracking that. I, for one, would not want to get in your way. That's for sure. About as, uh, about as much as I would want to get in your way would be just from a podcast perspective. But what does, what does information security look like at Johnson & Johnson? I mean, Johnson & Johnson, you know, you have 125,000 employees across 60 countries. You have a huge company that is world renowned for a portfolio of brands that are in people's lives every single day. And with that many people touching your products and that many people working in the company in that many countries, it seems like it could be a very complicated, you know, nightmare or headache potentially with that much, you know, risk profile. How do you kind of view all of that? Well, you know, it would be easy to make it very complicated, but uh, I, I enjoy making things simple and keeping them simple. It really is about running an organization. I have a worldwide organization working on all of the different J&J products and systems throughout the entire world, but it's really about the diversity of thought and including everyone's voice into the conversation. Because I have people who sit way out at the business edge or the customer edge, and their views may be very different than a systems engineer who's running our security operations center. 
And when you bring them together, it would be easy to have them be at odds at each other. But the culture that we run here and using the J&J credo is around diversity of thought, inclusion, uh, listening to people, and coming up with solutions that are good for our customers, for our patients, for our doctors, our nurses, because that's what we're in the business. Uh, we're in the business of healthcare and helping people and and solving some of the most difficult healthcare problems in the world. And to do that, the information security department has to be totally aligned with the business and protection of data and making sure our systems are secure. I want to get into that, into you know your relationship with the business. We've talked to a lot of, of CIOs and CTOs about this growing responsibility with the business, specifically on the B2B side where CIOs are spending a lot more time with the customer than ever before. A lot of the kind of ticket-taking mentality is kind of just par for the course at this time. And they're looking at innovation, at cloud technologies, at AI and machine learning and things like that to improve innovation within their companies. But specifically partnering with the business to learn and know exactly where they can add value in, in the ecosystem. How do you view your relationship as a C-level executive working with, first let's, let's talk with IT and with kind of how does information security and IT blend together as in this world as we're going forward? So uh, information security, I consider has one foot in IT and one foot in the business. And then maybe one foot in corporate government governance. So yep. I'm, a th- I'm a three-legged stool at best. I might have <laughs> even a leg or two more. But the reality is, is that I have to know that my charter, my mission is to protect the company and to protect the business data of our customers. So that's first and foremost. So there are times that I'm going to potentially be at odds with IT or with the business, but in a way that provides just another point of view. Ultimately, it will come down to business risk. And uh, a lot of security departments love to have perfect security. Perfect security may not be what's needed. Uh, Something may be just an experiment. And to put in all the heavyweight security requirements might not be what you want to do. But as long as you can say, if I'm taking somebody else's data and I'm ensuring it's protected, even if it's an experiment, then you're doing the right thing. And that's what it comes down to. I think you you see today, especially in those companies that are working with other people's data, credit card information, banking, insurance, that you will see that there is that need to bring together the business IT and cybersecurity and likely corporate governance, uh, lawyers and others that need to be involved to make the right decision the right risk decision for a company. You know, we've we've talked to folks in, in startup land where the CTO basically has has three functions where one of them is kind of similar three-legged stool. One of them is IT and kind of internal. The second one is product development, managing a team of engineers that are building product. And the third one being information security. It's interesting how different companies kind of adopt different names and roles and responsibilities for these kind of functions. Do you see that there's, you know, I I don't want to say a a best practice here, but a way, as, as we say in the military, that you've seen that is really good for the ability to balance all of these and, and truly give everyone a seat at the table? Um, I think that, again, it gets down to that diversity and inclusion in realizing who are the stakeholders that need to come together to make the the right business decision. If you only have salespeople and marketing people at the table, you're going to make a sales and marketing decision. 
If you only have the IT or the security people, you're going to make more of an IT or a security decision. But what needs to happen is you need to bring all of those elements together to make the right decision for the company. Now, I would tell you there isn't a one-size-fits-all. You can go to 50 different companies and talk to the CISOs of those 50 companies and their CIOs, and each one has a slightly different job and responsibility depending upon what industry they're in, and rightly so. And you have to be very cognizant. And in a, in a lot of areas, if you've seen a CIO or a CISO that has gone to multiple companies, they usually can translate from one industry to the next on why it's different. Uh, I started out my civilian career in the food industry. Best MBA I ever received. Be in yeah. a penny business and you will understand a P&L like nobody's business. <laughs> That's exactly right. But there I had I had customers who had to come into the stores. So I couldn't have an access control system like I would use in a corporate building where I didn't want people to freely walk in and out. I had different challenges because it's a cash business. People are paying in cash and bringing large sums of cash in a grocery store that's bringing in potentially on a holiday day uh, could be bringing in almost a million dollars worth of cash. How you move that out and the security that needs to go with that, how you protect that. CCTV systems that you're going to use are likely going to be different than the ones that you're going to use for your Skype in a conference room. And so you have to understand all the different, the business you're in and then how the technology applies to it and not go to a one-size-fits-all. And the VC people, I love them, right? The entrepreneurs and J&J does work with a lot of entrepreneurial companies because when they're ready to have to come into the healthcare fold or work with the FDA, our ability to take small companies and move them in and, and work with them the, with the regulations in the areas that they may not have experience with has been part of our business model. Let's talk about innovation for a second. I think... It is so interesting that that you touched on that when kind of the uh, the startups get a chance to grow up and and come into the fold a little bit. It uh, warms my heart as you know we're technically a uh, small and startup ish type of company here at Mission. But I think that it's an interesting point that we've talked to with a lot of the CIOs and CTOs on the podcast about how do you do that the right way and how do you bring a company in that doesn't have necessarily a, a secure posture, that doesn't have, they never had a CISO, they never had anything like that. And a lot of their security concerns were handled in a certain way, or maybe kind of an afterthought because they didn't have the runway to get to a certain place. How do you integrate technologies uh, into the company? Um, it has to be part of the business strategy. When you look at it in especially, if it's a very small company, it would be really easy to lose them in a company as large as J&J or a, any large company. So you have to look at what are you purchasing? Is it the technology? Is it the intellectual capital? Is it the molecule or the business model? And then make sure that you don't lose that. Now, some of the larger acquisitions may come with their own enterprise resource planning, ERPs, and then you're going to have to make a strategy around how many expense systems does one company need. And uh, likely, you know, if you have a heavyweight or a large system that's used uh, like a Concord or a Workday for your HR, uh, those are going to be the standards. Those are very easy discussions. But when it comes down to the special sauce of what makes a company a company, then it's up to the business to realize what needs to happen. And there are there are a number of things. Today, it's much easier to integrate a smaller company that maybe has never been on a, a corporate outlook system or the large scale IT systems using cloud and Office 365 and the web. It makes it a much easier proposition to bring a lot of them in because what used to be in the past was every acquisition was we want to see their calendars and send them emails. We don't want them to have this company 
company's email address and we don't want to actually integrate the networks. I would look at them and I'd say, okay, that's impossible. Now let's talk about option two. Today, I think there's many more options you can do, uh, which is in some ways make acquisitions and easing into a larger company much easier to do. You know, things with bring your own device and using the cloud, it just, it makes it 10 times easier than it ever was in the past. Yeah, that's cool to hear you say that. I think a lot of times, you know, the bring your own device stuff, I think is is terrifying for uh, for some security folks, but obviously really exciting for uh, for the consumer because I think a lot of us realize that we we would just rather have our own stuff and we can kind of bring it with us. How do you look at innovation internally with that many, you know, with 125,000 employees spread across all these countries? You're talking about, and a headquarters in New Jersey, you're talking about a ton of people that are really smart, that are, you know, creating things and ideas every single day. Are you doing things like hackathons? Are you doing things like, you know, any type of citizen development or uh, low code or no code stuff, anything like that? All of the above. We do everything everywhere. Um, and what I mean by that, we actually even have, J&J has innovation centers around the world. We invite, so from the J&J business side, people who are innovative and in looking at technologies or molecules or disease states, we work very closely in those spaces. We help them so that they have a place to come to. I know we have uh, one uh, in, I think it's London over in EMEA. We have one in, uh, at least one or two in Asia, as well as New York City, California, uh, to help grow the industry itself, uh, the biomedical industry and medical devices, as well as, so that is on the the business side. And then we have inside uh, some very, very smart R&D folks that are doing things like the J&J light mask used for acne treatments for uh, women and men and uh, uh, what that technology looks like that was created in-house. And then from the IT side, as you can imagine, a diverse IT IT infrastructure like J&J, many of the technologies that are the latest and greatest out there, we can use an outside cloud, but we have a internal bigger cloud. And so a lot of times our speed and agility can rival for a certain use case inside a J&J. Additionally, with our partners, our vendor partners are very active with us on their new technologies that are coming out. Some of our network partners working with us on what they're looking at, their roadmaps. And each one of our tech teams internally has a roadmap where they're looking at how to push their envelope. For me in security, you know, I keep hearing AIs on the street, but I can assure you it's not exactly where I want it for use in uh, prime time. And there are some cyber hygiene things potentially that can be done that will poise us. As I would tell people, there's a lot of uh, security technologies on what we call north-south traffic in and out of J&J or any corporation. But when you try to look for lateral movement, you need to have a better defined group to group to get that lateral movement. And where are those technologies? And the fact that there aren't a ton of them today would tell me that likely people are don't have a segmented network like they need to do. And so then you can create your priorities. Some of the priorities are around the innovation for tomorrow, but some of them are because we can get lost in shiny objects in IT. We really, really can. And at the end of the day, if you're not doing the right IT, what I call IT 101, you're patching, your ALM, your TLM, protecting segmentation of your network, uh, that ends up being a, can be as much a vulnerability as not having the greatest, latest and greatest technology to utilize. I like cyber hygiene. That would be a great- You like that? Yeah, great podcast name. It'll be the uh, <laughs> Marine podcast, uh, cyber hygiene. Do you think, I, I want to talk about the AI stuff a little bit. You said that it's not quite where you want it to be. Where where do you want it to be? Well, I'd love it to be where it was actually artificial intelligence. Today, it's a just slightly better than machine learning. 
Okay, so if you look at the maturity curve, AI is probably a 0.5, and we need it to be at probably a 0.6 or a 6, not a point, but a 6 on the maturity scale, especially depending upon what you're utilizing it for. In healthcare, um, we need to be sure it has to be exact. Uh, Some of the stuff that um, IBM Watson has been doing is interesting, but uh, not close enough to give any judgment to it. I think Jenny Rometty and her team over there is pushing the envelope, which is good to see. Uh, Again, in security, I may not have to have 100% assurity on some things before I take it off my network, but if it's something really important in my company, then I better make sure that I'm a little bit closer to that. But I have the ability to do that. So artificial intelligence, it sounds so good. It sounds so sexy. It's a marketing term at this point. And then when are we to the real, true intelligence? And what intelligence are we going to trust? Yeah. I mean, do you think that there's kind of a potential there for kind of the bad in, bad out type of AI? Because I know one of the big concerns for a lot of the leaders that we've talked to is just not being confident enough in their data and how that, if we're trying to learn from it, like we got to make sure it's good enough to begin with. Is that a concern for you? Well, I think anytime you do data science or big data and you look at it, it's the it's going to be the curation of that data to make you make sure you have the right data and and the data is accurate. The other is that and I'm certainly not an expert in this field, but the people that are creating the patterns and the intelligence to be the artificial intelligence, do they have any unconscious bias that they're putting into the programming? It's not that I I trust the data more than I trust the programmer. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, the data is going to be the data. Now, It may be bad programming underneath there or behind there, but at the end, the data is the data. And then it's the, how are you using it? Which is going to be very important. I think things like data ethics, uh, which we haven't, um, we haven't even touched the surface of yet, will probably be things that we see in the future that'll be taught at university or people will be looking at. Which data and how to use that, especially for us in healthcare, especially in human healthcare. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, you see from an advertising standpoint, anyone in healthcare, you know, we've all seen the the commercials where you have all of the disclosures that come in one of those, you know, in a 30 second spot, you have 15 seconds of, of saying all the different things about it. I mean, I think that there's so little room for error with some of that stuff and how that data is presented and and shared with consumers that could be potentially potentially pretty damaging and especially when you're trying to deepen customer relationships uh, a lot of the executives that we talk to are really trying to figure out how to improve customer experience how to you know if you're using a certain type of face wash what is the next you know level of this we just talked to Ali from Sephora and all the things that Sephora is doing to think about this entire thing that is how you feel about your face and your appearance and making you feel good and all those different things that come into it rather than just kind of the product thing. Do you think that this emphasis on customer experience and how that is delivered is potentially something that is going to be really exciting with AI, but also potentially has a, has a huge risk profile? Yeah, I think uh, it, there's pros and cons on everything. So there's going to be the good and the bad with it. Customer experience, customer intimacy have been phrases that have been out there for some period of time. And just, you know, when is using Amazon creepy because it can predict what I'm going to look at next? Or is it just throwing back intelligence? It's not artificial intelligence. It's not telling me what I want to look at next. It's telling me what I've already looked at and maybe I need to reorder. And when is that creepy? And why does it keep following me when I go on to my Google Mail or my MSN Mail and it's still following me and knowing what I was looking at? That's really creepy. And then the interplay of laws like California. I want to opt out of that. 
I don't want to be stalked online anymore. Just stop it. And then what will happen to the data sets? Do you need all all the you know, data of 18-year-old women who are using Sephora face cream to be able to make the analytics that's needed, or would a smaller subset of it good, the ones that just opt in? And are the ones that just opt in, are they the ones that need a date on Saturday night, or are they the ones that don't really need to be stalked at all? So, they, you know, I, I throw in a little humor there. Yeah, Totally. But a whole other play of human behavior is now, if my click data is my click data and you can't have it if I don't want you to, or you can't use it if I don't want you to, what will happen? I don't know. You know, we we talk a lot about like digital privacy, but we still haven't even got actual snail mail right yet. Like, how is it possible that I get... And I think that there's something that you can do to turn this off, but like, how hard is it to find, right? How much spam physical mail do I get that actually is wasting resources in this world? Like, that's the sort of thing where you're like, like, man, we haven't got mail right. And we've been doing mail for, you know, hundreds of years here. We could probably uh, do a lot better on digital, but that's one of those things where you're like, I mean, I'm excited for how technology can, can improve that sort of stuff, but uh you know, it, it's stuff like that where you're like, you're like, come on, we, we got to get our house right. Well, that's what I, uh, you know, somebody, some of our people who get like 250 emails a day yeah. and they get one phishing email and they'll send it to me. How, how did this get into the company? I said, have you looked at your mailbox at the street lately? Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. You, you live in the wrong zip code and you can get everything known to human beings in your mailbox. It's just amazing. It, it is. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what changes need to happen around customer data, click data, uh, what is privacy, what is not over the next few years. Uh, California privacy law is out there. There's 11 other states that are now looking at it. Honestly, once once California enacts, it's going to be very, very hard for companies in the United States to say, oh, you're a California citizen, but you're in Massachusetts, so I can get your data because you clicked, but I can't if you're in California. That's not, you just can't do that. So that's not going to happen. Nobody has that much intelligence on anybody. Well, hopefully. And so therefore, you're literally going to have to have almost every website in the United States is going to have to have the same consent and click-throughs to be able to have people enter their site. And then you'll have the lawyers fighting over whether it was appropriate notification or not because it was just the warning that showed up for two seconds. And all of these things will probably be in our future, which will be very, very interesting. We'll, we'll be doing more lawyering and privacy lawyering than we will actually IT and data uh, for our business. That is a scary thought. That is the first scary thought. Whatever we can get to, uh, to get technology to, to change that, that's what I want for sure. <laughs> one person who does have a ton of information is me about you. We have one more little thing that I'd like to share with our audience. So you graduated from West Point in the first class to include women, which is really cool. And you've also served on the Defense uh, Advisory Committee on Women and the Services appointed by the Secretary of Defense and the Overseas Security Advisory Committee by the Secretary of State. And you're also a founding member of West Point Women. I would love for you to just share a little bit about like what that experience has has meant to you as a woman in, in information technology and the information security uh, over the years, and, and maybe some advice to to the folks that are listening to take away from all that. So I grew up in Massachusetts, and I was even before that I was president of my class and was on a state championship field hockey team, but somehow. Uh, at the time, we were told that women couldn't go to the military academies. And I could not figure that out. So I was actually going to go ROTC at MIT uh, when the academies opened up. And I actually never applied for West Point. I applied for the Air Force Academy. And Margaret Heckler, who I consider one of the very first sponsors in my life, she made the decision to give me her principal nomination to West Point. So I went to West Point on July 7th, 1976, sight unseen. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. 
I didn't know that. And Oh, it gets better. And it took me five weeks to figure out that every time the cannon went off and we were going from parade rest, salute, parade rest, that there actually was a flag going up because <laughs> I stood, I was in a company that actually looked away, fifth company, which looked away from the flag, not at the flag. So I didn't realize until after Beast Barracks that the flag was going up and down during that little ritual every morning, noon, and night. But years later, I took electrical engineering at West Point. It was before there were majors, and they were looking at opening up electrical engineering and then computer science. And somebody approached me, and I said, yes, I'll go do that. And then I graduated, and I got the very last position in my class for military police and I became a military police. I joined the military police because at the time, it was the only branch in the United States Army where I could do almost every single job as a man. So I would be looked at equally. Nuclear weapons depot, I think, was the only position that women couldn't serve in at that point in time. And so when I joined, I had the intention of staying in, and then I got out and went to the FBI. As an FBI agent, we were out in San Diego, California. We were there for the Rogers bombing. I moved, my husband and I and our son moved to the East Coast. And while I was working as an undercover drug agent in Newark, New Jersey, I was approached by A&P Foods. And on their board of directors was a retired General Sam Wetzel, who was a Vietnam veteran and a West Point graduate. And he and the head of the board of directors, which was Elizabeth Hobb and Erevan Hobb, they decided that they wanted to find a female in law enforcement who had a security background that was a West Point graduate that was on the East Coast. And I was the one. So that was the second sponsor in my life. And what I would tell people is, is that if you're locked into you are a thing and you're not anything else, you will only become that thing. So I have always been open to the opportunity, and I never would have thought myself as fearless, but I would say I am fearless. I go in. When I left A&P Foods, I went over to Avaya Telecommunications, and I was there as the head of physical security. The head of IT security left, and they asked me to become the head of IT security, and They told me that they needed me to run the security of the network at the World Cup in Korea and Japan in 2002. So here I am with little practical knowledge and experience of how to run network security on a world stage. And I said, sure, I'd love to do that. And we ended up doing it as Avaya was running out some new technology called voice over IP. Oh my goodness. Yeah, isn't that cool? And so providing the security on a world stage like that and having to deal with the South Korean government and Intel organizations who were trying to hard pin test against our network, almost brought it down in production and having to have the conversations as well as the North Koreans, as well as dealing with the intercultural relationships between Japan and Korea, who still haven't gotten over World War II completely, allowed me to grow and move in this space. And so what I tell people is, is that if you've got a sponsor, listen to what your sponsor says and follow their advice. Margaret Heckler, General Sam Wetzel, provided me expertise and guidance and gave me an opportunity that nobody else will. There will be sponsors for you. Just recognize them and don't discount their advice and what they're doing for you. The other is be fearless. You know, I did undercover drug operations in Newark, New Jersey. I'm not a druggie. I don't know how to run a drug operation operation, but I was able to bring a operation bringing in 10,000 kilos a month into the New York metropolitan area down. So what I figured out was the skill that I learned in first grade is my greatest skill, read and comprehend. 
And IT, though it can be difficult and seem, especially at the most senior levels, it's around uh, diversity, inclusion, and leading your organization so that they can support the business. And that becomes kind of the model that I have lived with and the advice that I give people. If you believe you can do it, you have a chance of doing it. If you believe you can't, you'll never get it done. That's incredible stuff and just such a cool story. Um, I love that you did not apply. You've got to be one of the only people that never applied <laughs> to West Point to get in. That's pretty great. And uh, I, I can be I can be one of those. I was not the 10,000 in the 10,000 who applied for West Point. I was one of the ones who didn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's just it's so cool. And I think it's a great reminder to to push you know, the boundaries to push what you think you can do. And I think that's one of the things that the military, specifically West Point, does the best uh, in, in the entire world is making you feel uncomfortable in so many ways that you just kind of get comfortable being uncomfortable. That's a nice way to say it. <laughs> comfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's get into the lightning round. Fast and easy questions. No pressure. You don't know what's coming. Are you ready? I'm ready. Born ready. What app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Most fun. Waze. Oh, I used Waze to get here this morning. What do you do for fun? Um, my husband and I have a 182-acre organic blueberry farm in North Florida. Wow. That's exciting. It is. It's very exciting. And we also, we are the largest producer of organic blueberries in Madison County, Florida. That is, we can we order online? Um, can, can we <laughs> Not get quite yet. We're going all through nature, right? <laughs> I love it. Do you have a favorite uh, recent book that you've read or podcast that you listen to? The most recent book I've read was, uh, man. Now, of course, I'd have to remember the name of it, huh? It was it was a book on Asia, on um, the rise of Asia. Oh, interesting. Yeah, well, you have to look at you have to look at the demographics of the world and how many people are in Asia and where are uh, people growing versus what's happening in North America and uh, Europe, and so you have to look at the economic models and where are the people at and where you're going to have to solve the problems. Yeah, we we did a podcast, Futurist Cities. And one of the things that was so interesting to me was Lagos uh, in, in Nigeria is estimated that in the next hundred years will be over a hundred million person city. It's like stuff like that. You're like, this is just mind blowing growth. Right. Well, so the two places that are growing are Asia and Africa. Yeah. And how many companies are doing business or, oh, there's fear of doing business in Asia. You know, it's okay. You can have fear or you can have profits. Um, yeah. You're going to have to look at it. I love that. that that'll be a nice quote. Okay, final, uh, final question for the lightning round. What's your best advice for a first-time CISO, CIO, or CTO? Talk with your peers. Find a friend. Find a, somebody you can chat with that has no retribution and talk with them at will. I love it. Maureen, you are... Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's just so many good insights and uh, and hopefully we can have you back soon because uh, th this is just great. All right. Well, thank you. I I certainly enjoy it and it's a lot of fun and I'm glad our paths crossed so we're, and we were able to make this happen. Absolutely. Thanks All right. Again. Go Army. Go, beat Navy. <laughs> beat Navy. Thank you, Ian. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash build mobile apps.